Today on Ag News Daily. Lastly, to planet crime is because of our regional differences in time frame. And then we're also the first state to start harvesting a crop. And we are the last state to finish harvesting a crop, even though we're in the same state uh, versus others. So we're kind of unique in that aspect. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's another Ag News Daily podcast. And today is a Wednesday. Delaney, how is your Wednesday going so far? Well, Ashton, it is Wednesday and day after elections here. We are not through the election cycle quite yet, are we? Sure, sure not. I've been keeping an eye out as much as I can, but nothing's really been happening for quite some time now. But as of about 3.15 this Wednesday afternoon, it's uh, about two, 248 electoral college votes for Biden and 214 for Trump. Yes, but there are still a few key swing states yet to be finalized. So I'd say it's potentially still anyone's election at this point. But yes, you're right, Ashton, 248 to 213. They need 270 to become our next sitting president or our next president, I should say. Um, And it's speculated that we won't really see final election results until maybe it's as late as, you know, or as early, I should say, really, as end of this week. So we saw a lot of mail-in and absentee voters send um, their ballots in this year, and that's really causing things to be delayed a little bit. But from an agricultural perspective, Ashton, this really has put some excitement and some shock into the markets. We saw ahead of the election, grains, gold, stocks, etc. pull back. And today they finished considerably higher. So it seems that perhaps the worst is behind us. Um, We also saw a weaker dollar heading into the election. And that lent itself really for some favorable news when it came to export numbers and exports, I should say, specifically for the soybean side of things. It's been somewhat supportive and has boosted soybean exports this week, but corn really hasn't been touched yet. And so, you know, we're there's a lot of fundamental factors at play here, Ash, and we've got the election or uncertainty, really, when it comes to the election we're seeing in Europe and other other places uh economies shut down again, which is not friendly for oil and in turn ethanol and in turn corn. But then on the same side of things, we're seeing economies like China have rebuilding of the um, hog herds and needing more grain exports. So there's just a lot of interesting factors at play right now. There certainly is Delaney. And when you put it like that about, you know, economy shutting down and then oil, ethanol, corn, there's just so many cogs and wheels that go into movement for the big machine. And I think that's one thing that I don't necessarily think about all the time, but it's definitely, you know, just a big domino effect. But one one news story that I am looking out on today, other than that domino effect, is harvest. A timely harvest this past year has allowed companies to get a head start on compiling agronomic data, which is important for growers as they are Moving on to looking forward to the 2021 growing season, Jim Hedges with Winfield United told Brownfield Ag News that there have been challenges in some areas, but nationwide harvest and data collection of the 2020 crop are well ahead of recent years, which is a good thing for researchers, agronomists, and growers. He also said that growers can be looking at how certain varieties and hybrids react to inputs like nitrogen and the fungicides. 
And lastly, Hedges added that growers should connect with their local retailer and agronomists, excuse me, to discuss data from the 2020 season and products that will work best for their operation looking into 2021. All right. Well, looking into 2021, we've got, of course, the election, but we've also got harvest in other countries. Ashton, Brazil is getting some much needed rainfalls this week. It seems that in some of their major growing regions, they are getting some moderate rainfall amounts for about 75% of the area in the country for the next six to 10 days. Forecasts are also suggesting that temperatures will be below average for the week turning to average to a bit above average by the end of the week into the weekend. In Argentina, they are seeing limited rainfalls here over the next six to 10 days and temps running a little below average. So the rainfall is definitely favorable for their planting season. The lower than normal temperatures, however, is not. So we will continue to keep an eye on that developing weather story. Another weather story that I have been looking out on today in in the U.S. is dry weather conditions in the Midwest and fire danger that's anticipated in Kansas and Missouri. Weather maps are, again, relatively quiet this morning with dry weather, according to the National Weather Service, which will allow for the last of harvest to be completed you know, fairly quickly with this dry weather, no rain or, or snow or any other kind of participation really getting in the way here. But extremely dry weather in parts of Colorado and Kansas is creating, quote, critical fire weather conditions. So definitely keeping an eye out on that and hoping at least that Colorado doesn't see any more fires this year and hopefully Kansas doesn't see any either. Well, you know, Ashton, those areas are some pretty big wheat producing areas and wheat uh, has felt a little pressure today after having strong climbs in the markets earlier this week. But I've got a little bit of wheat news besides what you're sharing there with some drier than normal conditions. We've also had some follow-ups, Ashton, to the China-Australia story that you reported on yesterday. Um, You listed quite a laundry list of products yesterday that China has officially banned from Australian imports, including, you know, lobster was a big one. I remember you reported on sugar and a few others. But the newest one that is expected to be added to the list is Australian wheat imports, which would put about $560 million of trade in doubt. Follow that story up, Ashton, with a piece of news here that the, the French soft wheat Shipments from the European Union in October reached their highest monthly level for the season and largely a record volume of exports headed to China with that French soft wheat. So it seems that uh, China is likely to go ahead and move forward with that ban on Australian wheat. And they've already seemed to find a market to fill their wheat needs turning to the EU. Well, Delaney, I know that they were anticipating that they would put that ban on Australian wheat. They just didn't know when it was going to come. So I'm glad that you were able to follow up and answer that question for us today. But I just have one more headline, and it is concerning the EPA. Their re-registration of atrazine is being challenged in court. Groups including the Center for Food Safety and the Center for Biological Diversity 
asked the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to stop the use of the herbicide, saying it is banned in more than 30 countries for health reasons. And from the looks of it, they took to the courts on Friday. So this is a little bit of a later headline that we're seeing. But the Center for Food Safety says that the EPA failed to do its job of protecting health and the environment. However, the EPA says they've done a thorough review of atrazine, propazine, and simazine, and say the new protections give the nation's farmers more clarity and certainty concerning proper use. So, Ashton, what's the big headline here? Really just that atrazine is being challenged in court. I say that they took it to the courts Friday and we're just now reporting it here on Wednesday. But, I mean, it is still a a fairly new court case. And so I haven't found anything that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals is saying just yet. But the EPA, I do know, added new preliminary requirements for atrazine use back in September, which included spray drift control measures and specific boom and nozzle guidelines. And so the, from, the, from the looks of it, the EPA has, has done their, their research and are putting these measures in, but there are certain groups that are still saying that atrazine really isn't safe and deciding mm-hmm. that it is banned in more than 30 countries for health reasons. And I looked a little bit more into it and I'm seeing a lot of push against atrazine, but I really, it's just up to what the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has to say about it. All right. Well, we'll continue to watch the development there, Ashton. But the other thing I've been watching this uh, Wednesday afternoon is where the markets were developing today. What do you say? Let's hear it. All right. Well, as I mentioned, you know, we saw corn pull back early this week as well as soybeans and they shrugged off any sort of election uncertainty today as the December corn contract closed up four and a quarter cent to close at 405 and a quarter. The March up five and a quarter to close at 411 and a quarter. Soybeans big moves today as the November contract put on 1079, excuse me, put on 20 cents to close at 1079. The January up 22 to close at 1086 and a quarter. Chicago wheat pits pulling back just slightly today. As the December contract shed two pennies to close at 6.06, the March down a half a cent to close at 6.09 and a half. In the livestock pits, strength today as well as the December live cattle contract added a nickel to close at 107.87, the February up 47 and a half cents to close at 110.77 and a half. In the feeder cattle pits, the November contract up a dollar fifty-seven to close at one thirty-seven seventy. The January up a dollar ninety-seven and a half to close at one thirty-five fifteen. And in the lean hog pits, the strength continues today as the December live December lean hog contract added ninety-five cents to close at sixty-six thirty-five. The February up a dollar forty-seven to close at sixty-seven on the nose. And rounding out our markets with the Class Three dairy milk futures, the only weakness today really we had, other than the wheat complex, as the December. Class three milk futures closed down four cents to close at 2018. The January up down seven to close at 17.92. Now, Ashton, I know you took care of today's interview. Tell us a little bit more about who you'll be chatting with. Today, we're talking cotton and some dicamba news with Cody Besant of Plains Cotton Growers. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Cody Besant, who is the Vice President of Operations and Legislative Affairs for Plains Cotton Growers. Cody, thank you so much for coming on today. It's great to be with you this afternoon. 
So I want to talk a little bit more about Plains cotton growers before we actually start talking about harvest and other things involving cotton. Who exactly is Plains cotton growers working with and who are they serving? Because, you know, I'm, I'm in Texas. I'm actually in Lubbock, as is Plains cotton growers. And so obviously we have a lot of cotton up here in the panhandle of Texas, but we also have cotton down, you know, kind of on the coast over, you know, by the border with Mexico. So are you serving the entire state? You know, it's Plains cotton growers. So who more specifically, who are you guys serving? Sure. So we're one of actually seven cotton organizations throughout the state. Uh, We predominantly represent cotton producers throughout the Panhandle High Plains and Southern High Plains of Texas. We're a a 43 county uh, area based organization. Uh, We cover roughly around 65 percent of all Texas cotton that is produced on an annual basis and around 35 to 40 percent of all the U.S. cotton production that is produced on an annual basis. And predominantly, we do represent the grower segment of the cotton industry. And there are seven segments within the cotton industry uh, that funnel into the National Cotton Council, which we also funnel in as well as a certified producer organization. And uh, and certainly jive very well with other segments, whether it be uh, the ginning sector, the merchant sector, the, the warehouse sector and so forth. But, but predominantly, we represent cotton producers here on the high plains of Texas. And uh, we serve in a, a policy uh, arena, if you will, working on federal legislation as well as state legislation. We also work in avenues within agencies like USDA and EPA on rulemaking to try to give uh, producers a loud and unified voice within the process of policy and and rulemaking throughout the uh, the state, but also in the federal arena, and correlate that with the National Cotton Council and, and uh, a lot of initiatives moving forward in that direction as well. You know, Cody, I hadn't realized how many sectors of the cotton industry there were, but it definitely makes a lot of sense now that you say that. It's definitely, I feel like, a unique crop. But I have just one kind of clarification question that I want to ask you, and that is, how does the cotton that we produce up here in the Texas Panhandle compare to the cotton that's being produced in South Texas? So it's it's relatively similar. We have different growing conditions. So by example, that I, uh, we had a recent freeze uh, that came about, whereas South Texas cotton necessarily doesn't have those same type of climatic conditions. Uh, but all is relatively upland cotton, and we're unique in the fact that the state of Texas produces upland cotton, uh, and we are stripped. Uh, as far as how we harvest cotton in our region, a little bit differently than South Texas. Most cotton in South Texas is picked. And what I mean by that is, so most South Texas cotton, there's a set of fingers, it looks like a comb that will pull the lint out of the burr versus here, everything is stripped off the stock and uh, processed and harvested through that type of mechanism. And uh, the, the uh, pick method is a very predominant method, not only through South Texas, but also, also through the Mid-South and the rest of the cotton belt. So we're kind of unique in how we, uh, how we harvest our cotton throughout the High Plains and Southern High Plains of Texas. Um, from an agronomic standpoint, we're very similar. Uh, we we uh, all have applications of either pesticide or herbicide applications. Uh, we all have methods of uh, agronomic conditions where we can either pre-plant or, uh, or have a, a pre-emerged herbicide go down in front of everything. Um, so we're, we're similar, but we're, we're a little bit different as far as uh, some of the, mainly the climatic conditions and how we go about in a, a harvesting aspect. What's unique to Texas compared to other states, I've noted, is we're probably the 
if I'm not mistaken, we are the first state to actually plant a crop. And uh, we are the last state to plant a crop just because of our regional differences in time frame. And then we're also the first state to start harvesting a crop. And we are the last state to finish harvesting a crop, even though we're in the same state uh, versus others. So we're kind of unique in that aspect. Yes, I definitely think that you would be correct, Cody, because if I'm not mistaken, they finished harvest for the cotton produced in South Texas quite some time ago, at least, you know, for a, a few weeks now they've been done. And up here in the panhandle, we are still working on our cotton harvest. So why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about the cotton harvest that is taking place and what crops are looking like and, and how that's going? Sure, you bet. This year's, you know, a unique year, just like everything else has been. Um, as you mentioned, the South Texas area, they roughly try to finish up harvest around August, um, and then they try to migrate up through to our area. Uh, but relatively, on a good rule of thumb, we try to start around Halloween in this region uh, to start harvest and then try to finish up by Thanksgiving, if not a little bit earlier, sometimes later. This year's harvest is is very unique, um, as with the last couple of years, but just we've had some growing environment environmental conditions, such as the drought that we've experienced over the summer, the recent early freeze that have impacted us, and just ultimate growing th conditions as a whole that have limited harvest. So we plant relative 60% of our acres are dry land, 40% of that acres are irrigated. A lot of our acres, as far as dry land, were abandoned way early on in the summer just because of the climatic conditions and the heat that we saw. We have a very good stand, very good emergence. And uh, so a lot of those acres that would traditionally be harvested from a drawing perspective are just simply not there this year. Irrigated acres you know, were able to kind of maintain course of action. Um, they did stress quite a bit over the summer just because some of the irrigation uh, systems were unable to keep up with what they needed to do to, to uh, uh, maintain course of action within that crop. And so there was some stress within that crop if you didn't have a good irrigation well or method uh, moving forward. And so we'll see some yield impacts because of that. Um, from a harvest standpoint, we're probably around 30% harvested throughout the region right now. Um, some of that was delayed because of the uh, recent freezing conditions that we had, but but everybody is fully up and running throughout the high plains and southern high plains right now, and I expect them to continue to move forward and aggressively try to get the crop out of the field. Grades and quality uh, still remain positive at this point in time. Uh, most of the grades have been pretty pretty nominal or pretty normal. Um, we were up in the Panhandle a couple of weeks ago, and some of the cotton that was coming out up there was grading very well. It was loaning for about 56 to 55 cents, and then producers were able to sell some of that on the marketplace for 70 to 73 cents um, per pound, which is good. Now, that is not certainly the standard that most or the average will receive moving forward, uh, but certainly that is um, very, very much a positive note for some of those that are able to take advantage of that and be able to receive such a price moving forward. So, Cody, when you're mentioning irrigation systems, it kind of set off an alarm in in my brain. But from my understanding, there's you know states that don't use the irrigation systems that that we use here in Texas. I know that I'm familiar with seeing them as I'm driving past farms on the side of the road, but some folks aren't super familiar with that. And with that being said, I know that a lot of folks down here are drawing that water from the Ogallala Aquifer. And so as that is kind of drying up, we're trying to look towards a more sustainable future for our, our crops. And so more specifically, how is the cotton industry dealing with that sustainability issue? 
It's, it's a great question. One we get asked very frequently, as you mentioned, most people aren't accustomed to using groundwater as a source of uh, water that is needed for a cropping condition. So by example, you get over to the Mid-South where you go through Georgia, Alabama, they receive amicable amount of rainfall typically throughout a growing season. So irrigation is something they're not really too much worried about. They're typically trying to move water off of a field versus we're trying to capture it and utilize every bit of it. Same within the uh, within the uh, Midwest throughout the Corn Belt as well. One thing that, that producers throughout this region are aggressively starting to look at is crop rotations, uh, no-till operations, how they can better utilize uh, the mitigation of rainfall that we receive captured in that soil profile and try to not disrupt that soil profile throughout the growing season. Um, so that means less passes across the field, whereas we have previously and historically uh, had more passes and in, in, uh, uh, sweeps and uh, plowing going across the field, more producers today are not doing that. They're planting, by example, wheat as a cover crop and uh, in the last part of October, November, whenever they finish up harvest, they will leave that wheat across that field and then they will plant cotton back into that stubble going across the planting season in, uh, in May. And so they're leaving a lot of that profile undisturbed. And so that water that we, able, we are able to capture throughout the growing season naturally stays in that profile and we're able to use it. And that's becoming more of a predominant practice compared to what we were 15, 20 years ago. I'm definitely seeing folks, not even just in the cotton industry, use cover crops on their operation more than they have in the past and introducing that practice onto their farms. So I definitely think it's something that we'll see more of in the future. But I just have one last question before I let you go, Cody, and that is concerning dicamba. We saw that re-registration last week and we, we reported it on the podcast, but we have yet to really hear any big talk that's going on within the industry about dicamba. So if you've heard anything in the fields on what producers are thinking about that dicamba re-registration, or if you want to talk a little bit more about the details and how it impacts the cotton industry, please expand on that. Sure. I think most people are still trying to digest the registration, just the fact that it was uh, made available this last week. Um, Certainly, I know the, the product itself over time, the last couple of years, has been a very viable product for producers to use to combat weed resistance. Um, but the most are still trying to digest, you know, really what does it mean? The, the new regulations tied into the label and how that applies to them as a single operation, how they can utilize that product moving forward. Um, certainly, we're doing the same thing. Um, and, and most, too, to be quite honest, since we are in a, a harvest type situation, they're more focused on trying to get the crop out of the field and may have more time to review the actual label and what it means to their operation and how to utilize the product moving forward once we get into January when they've got some time to slow down. Um, but, but certainly, um, I, I think most are probably going to be uh, welcoming a, a decision made by EPA. Um, they may see some challenges with that. Uh, depending on how the label plays out for their operation. Um, but certainly most are still going to have to dive into it and see what it means for the operation, just like we are as well. Absolutely. Well, again, Cody, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You bet. Appreciate the opportunity.
Thanks again to Cody for coming on the podcast today. It's certainly great to hear about cotton harvest here in the Plains and just hoping that harvest continues to go well for those who are still making their last rounds. Absolutely. And last rounds is what most folks are making, Ashton. So for those of you who are finishing up some final passes in the fields, we should sure you're tuning in with Ag News Daily. We'll keep you abreast of all that world stuff that's going on outside of your cab window. And Ashton, they can always follow along with us, listen to past episodes at agnewsdaily.com, or they can interact with, I'm going to say you mostly at this point on our social media sites, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.